My name's Sean. I get to hang out with you today on a special day like Father's Day is, is really cool. Uh, being a dad is, um, man, it's, it's one of my favorite things in the world. And uh, I'm blessed with great kids. And uh, I love watching other guys that, that are dads. We've had this group of guys that have been hanging out for the last year plus, uh, talking about being dads and being as good a dad as we could on Wednesday mornings. And uh, these guys just encourage me because it, really, there's so much we can do with our lives, but showing up for the people around us uh, in a healthy way and then investing in them and helping them get, them get where they want to get in their life, it, it's the best. So thank you guys that are out there that are, that are doing that, that are, that are being dads. You guys ever watch the, the Late Tonight Show with uh, Jimmy Fallon? Anybody ever seen that? So he's got this thing, he, he, uh, one night a week, I don't know what night, but he does hashtags. And uh, he sends out a hashtag, and then people kind of comment on that, and uh, it becomes a, a trending comment, a comment but uh, let's see. He did hashtag dad advice. So I was going to read you a few of these, just in case you've been missing out on good advice from your dad. Um, so a dad said, uh, he said, my dad said every time he went to a wedding, there are three rings in marriage, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. Um <laughs> My dad said at the grocery store, if the cashier asks you if you want your milk in a bag, tell them to just leave it in the carton. Uh, at the airport, my dad said to put one shoe in each of my suitcases. That way, in case the bag gets stolen, they can't wear my shoes. Yeah. My dad said essential oils are used only to fry onion rings, wings, or french fries. All other oils are not essential. Uh, Dad admitted that he always threw the baseball at my head. He said, you learned how to catch really quick that way. <laughs> and a teen shouted at his dad, it's not your job to embarrass me. And dad said, I know, it's one of the perks. <laughs> so being a dad, there's a guy, Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. And uh, he, as far as we know, at least in the way he writ, wrote in the Bible, he didn't have uh, any kids, um, but he was a spiritual father to some folks like Timothy and Titus. And then he would plant these churches and then go on about doing other things. And uh, when then he would, he would kind of still father those churches. He would write back to them, write letters back to them. And that's what makes up these things in the New Testament that he authored. And uh, one of those examples is the Philippians. So that's a group of people that was from this little area called Philippi, which was a, a Roman colony. And uh, it was a particularly loyal Roman colony. They had a lot of nationalism there. They were really, they loved, you know, the Roman government and the, and the, uh, the comforts that came with being under their authority. And so it was a pretty tough place to plant a church and try to convince people that, you know, hey, there's a bigger authority, a higher authority than, than the Roman leader uh, and that is this new kingdom in the kingdom of God. And uh, so he planted the church, though. They got a little bit going. They faced a lot of persecution, but they were great folks. And uh, later in, in the story in life, Paul was imprisoned, and uh, the, the folks of Philippi actually sent uh, somebody to kind of bring some gifts and some things to him while he was in prison. And he was so touched by that that he wanted to send them some encouragement back. So he wrote this letter to Philippians, and that's uh, there's four chapters in it. It's, it's a pretty cool little book worth looking at. But in the very first chapter, he kind of highlights this idea that, that we've got to decide where we want our citizenship to be. Like we have a choice to make. We can either be 
you know, really totally devoted to the country we live in, uh, or we can add to that and even let supersede that, this idea that we are a part of God's kingdom and that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so if you start right there in Philippians chapter one, verse 27, Paul says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And, and as I read that, I, I, if they'll go back to that for just a sec, that, that verse 27, it, it, just, it does make me kind of think of what a dad would say, right? If I, I can't be with you guys, um, but I want you to remember what's important. I want you to remember who you belong to. I want you to remember that there is good news and things that should bring you a lot of encouragement. I want you to stick together as family. And that's, that's what he's saying. And so the rest of the letter is just neat. He gives them some real practical things that they can do to live counterculturally. Because the world we live in is a difficult spot. It's, there's a lot of things going on that are trying to influence us to get us off track and make us miss out on what the real blessings are in our culture. So you can kind of fast forward in the, in the book a little bit to chapter three, and you get to verse 17 through 19. And, and Paul, so where we're gonna land is, is in chapter four, but this is the last few verses of chapter three. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, this is a pretty cool thought, just that verse alone, as we look at, at Father's Day and, you know, kind of who are we following? Who is it that you're looking at and who is it you're paying attention to? I'd say being a dad is one of my favorite things. Man, I remember uh, Taylor, our daughter, about five years old, we moved to the Ozark Mountains and uh, we, we like to hike. So we went out one day on a new hike and we got a late start. It's pretty late in the afternoon, but it was a loop trail and said, so, all right, we'll be all right. It was a pretty long loop trail, but she, was, she loved doing it. She, she never complained. She's actually excited to be out there. And uh, so we make the, start making the loop. Well, we get to a point like halfway through the loop trail, like two miles into this loop trail. And uh, there was this fork in the, in the trail, and it got real confusing which way to go. And uh, I knew how much light we had left before dark, and I knew that we needed to get rolling and uh, I knew if we made a bad choice that we, and we down, down the wrong path, we weren't going to make it back before dark, which wouldn't have been the end of the world to us. But to mom, to Christina, that would have been the end of the world. Um, and so uh, I said, all right, we got to figure out what to do. Looking at the fork in the road, I'm like, which direction do you think we should go, Taylor? And, you know, she's five. She looks up at me and she says, Dad, I, she said, I don't know which way to go, but I'm going to follow you. And uh it seemed like a little statement on a hike, but man, it just resonated with me the rest of, you know, the time that, that we were out there and then even beyond that people are following you. They are. Whether you want them to or not, whether you're proud of where you're headed or not, people are watching you. If you're young and in school, if you're in middle school or high school, there are people looking at you to see how, you, how you're going to live, what decisions you're going to make. If you're a parent, you certainly have people doing that. If you're a grandparent, and you've got people still watching you. Are we going to live this way? You know, where we create a model and an example for those whose eyes are on us and want to live the way we do. Verse 18 says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. 
This is what we're up against. They were up against it way back then. Paul's writing with tears in his eyes about the dangers and the pitfalls and the amount of people who are out there who are just living for their own desires, living hedonistically, selfishly, trying to fulfill themselves, find the easy route, do what makes them comfortable or makes them happy. And we're surrounded by that. But Paul goes on in the last couple of verses in chapter three, and he says this, but our citizenship, here we go again, is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we'll be like his glorious body. So again, he's pointing out that we have a different citizenship. My, my dad advice at the start of the year for our crew was this idea of being countercultural. I had stickers made that say countercultural, uh, and I want our family to look different than the way the world is going. And probably a lot of you want that as well. That's what Paul is getting at. He's like, you need to choose which path you want to go. The way the world is going, where we just kind of gratify ourselves and satisfy ourselves and, and try to get as comfortable as possible, or do you want to go the route of being a citizen of heaven and what that would look like? And then he gets real practical with us, and that's why we're going to camp here. Just some seven points from Philippians chapter 4 that you can apply in a lot of different ways. So if you're a dad, you can think about how am I doing in these seven areas knowing that there are people following me? Man, for everybody else in the room, just as much application for you because they're principles that will help us figure out how to live life counterculturally, different than the world. So let's just start right at the beginning. Philippians 4.1 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, I just want to tell you, let's just stop right there for a second. This guy is writing a letter, and the first three things he says, he identifies who he's writing to, my brothers and sisters whom I love, my joy, and my crown. He obviously is just doing everything in his power to to, to help these folks to understand how valuable they are to him, because he's about to lay out seven things that he wants them to apply in their life so they don't get trapped in the world. The first one he says is stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand firm in the Lord. As as life comes to to, to batter you and knock you around and throw you off course, we need people who are willing to stand firm in the Lord. As the Bible comes under attack for, uh, you know, this things that people say about it and the verses in there and the ways that people, you know, we define people and everything you know, it's, you got to decide, am I going to be countercultural and stand firm in the Lord? Or am I going to kind of cave to whatever it is that seems the most comfortable in this conversation or the easiest thing to do or what most people in the culture are saying? So that must be true. Stand firm in the Lord. We need people who are willing to persevere and persist when things get hard. And let's be honest, there's less and less of those folks out there. The easy thing to do is to throw in the towel, call it quits, rest on the sideline. Standing firm is something that's really challenging. There's a guy, he was back in the 90s, named Stu Weber, and he wrote a book that I really like called Tender Warrior. And uh, he said this in the book. He said, staying power, the bottom line, stay with it, man. Stick by your commitment. Stand by your promises. Never, never let go, no matter what. When marriage isn't fun, stay in it. When parenting is over your head, stay at it. When work is crushing your spirit, don't let it beat you. When the local church is overwhelmed with pettiness, stay by it. When your children let you down, pick them up. When your wife goes through a six-month mood swing, live with it. When it's fourth and 14 with no time on the clock, 
throw another pass. That's what we need. We need people willing to live a life that perseveres and holds on. I, uh, you know, the, the, I just learned a little bit ago that the, um, the sign for faith is, is it, does anybody know sign language? Does that sound right? This is the sign for faith. It's like holding on to a rope with both hands. And uh, are you willing to stand firm in the Lord? We're going to get super practical because that's how I want it to be. So one to 10, rate how well you do at standing firm and persevering. One to 10, give yourself a score 10. I'm amazing at this. I stand firm in the truth. I stand firm you know, in my convictions. I don't get swayed by anything. I persevere. I never stop. That's 10. One is I just go wherever the wind blows me. So one to 10, give yourself a score. All right, so you got it. I'm, it's not hypothetical. This is, this is real. Give yourself a little score right there. And uh, if you're with somebody, you can turn to them and tell them what your score is. So it's accountability. Go for it right now. Just tell them what your score is. How, how well are you doing at standing firm? All right, that's number one. Number two, the second thing that he tells them, if they want to live counterculturally, if they want to lead and give an example, then you go into verse four where it says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoicing is the experiencing and expressing of joy. I don't know if you've ever been at a church that does uh, announcements every week, but I've been in a lot and I actually listen at this church and it's not because I really know that much about what's being announced, but it's because Taylor Christensen exudes joy in announcements. I mean, man, I'd love to hear him read a bedtime story to a kid, man. I bet it's like animated and fiery and stuff is happening. So if you want to know what it looks like, that's what it looks like. See, joy is different than happiness. Happiness is somewhat tied to your circumstances and how things are going. Joy is this deep inner state that comes from being connected to the Lord and being able to see a bigger perspective of what's going on. You won't always be happy and you won't always be ready to express joy. But Paul is saying pretty emphatically, and he says it twice with an exclamation point, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say again, Rejoice. Do the people around you experience you as a joyful person? Or do they say, well, he's kind of a bump on the log. Or he's a downer. Well, I mean, if we ever need a reality check, we know where to go. <laughs> One to 10. How about you? One to 10, joy. Give yourself a score. I exude joy. I express joy. I feel joy. Even when things are hard, I know that joy is in there and, and, and I hang on to that. Or not so much. So one to 10, share it with somebody beside you for accountability. How are you doing with joy? That's just the second countercultural thing. All right, the third. In verse five, it says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now I should tell you, if you're following along in your Bible, it actually has a little heading that says final exhortation. All right, an exhortation is like a, it's like a charge. It's like a strong argument, final words to motivate people. That's what Paul is doing in the end of this letter. He's trying to say, let me give you a few things to motivate you on how you should live your life. Our son's buddy, Jordan Weeks, got married yesterday and uh, last night. And so we were at the wedding and I was watching his dad give these, this final exhortation to his son. 
you know, and, and his new bride about, you know, how they could live their life and how to, how to pursue each other. And uh, that's what Paul is doing in this letter. It's like a coach, you know, the game's about to start. He's got one thing left to say before they head out of the locker room. That's where we are with Paul. He's trying to say, we're about to go in this crazy world. He's given us this list of seven things. And the third is gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Uh, another version says considerate consideration, the ability to consider others and what they're feeling or what they're thinking. This, in a, the King James Version actually says moderation. Let your moderation be known. It's this idea of being able to regulate your emotions so you don't just go to intense, passionate anger or loudness, but having this gentleness that creates safety for the people around you. Now, there's a place for that. There's a place for boldness. There is. But man, what our world desperately needs in a countercultural way is the quiet voice that's willing to listen and then kind of gently give a response. That's why Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle response turns away wrath and anger. You have the ability to de-escalate the situation if you are a person of gentleness. One to 10, how are you doing on gentleness? One to 10. Now as men, man, this is challenging because we're taught we're supposed to be tough and big and fight off the demons and all of that stuff. And at the same time, your family needs a tender version of you. Picture those old photos in Sunday school class of Jesus, you know, as a shepherd holding that little sheep. Lots of gentleness in Jesus. And his so one to 10. Gentleness. So that's the third. Now we're moving into Philippians 4, 6. And uh, this one verse has points four, five, and six in it. So we're going to hit them all. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Don't worry. If you want to be a great dad, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be countercultural, if you want to be somebody that has set an example, then this is the best place to start. Because if you want to look different from the world, you need to learn how to control your worry and your anxiety. Those are real things. Now, don't get me wrong. Anxiety is a real thing. Stress is real. And if all Paul said was, don't be anxious, and he left it at that, it would be pretty uncaring, to be honest, because that's not very helpful. But he goes so far as to say, but let me give you the anecdote to worry and anxiety. And he gives us two significant things. Number one is he says, pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray consistently. When things go bad, pray. And then the second thing he says is express gratitude. You need thankfulness because prayer and gratitude counteract worry and anxiety. You go see a counselor and you have some level of anxiety. One of the things that they will do is some exercises to kind of calm you down. All right, this is a secular counselor who doesn't know anything about Jesus. We'll do that. Give you some exercises to calm you down. That's what prayer does for us calms us down. It takes our worries and hands them off to somebody who has the power to do something about it, who's bigger and stronger than us in God. And then gratitude. See, you, you got to replace. You can't just empty and leave a void because the anxiety will run right back. But if in that void you put gratitude and you make a list of the things that you're grateful for, that you're appreciative of, or the blessings that you've received, now all of a sudden you've got a formula that starts to counter that anxiety and that worry. But all three of those things, you're going to look different from the world. Don't worry. Now, there's some things, there's a difference between anxiety and worry. 
I mean, anxiety is pretty significant. It's physiological. Worry is kind of this mindset that we get in that, every, you know, we got everything, little thing. And Paul's saying, don't worry about all the little stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. You got to discern what's small stuff and big stuff. But man, we pick up way too much stuff to worry about. Don't do that. You know, and if, if this is an issue for you, quit watching TV for a little while. Quit looking at social media because that's just places for you to find more stuff to worry about. So get straight around this idea that you don't have to worry. How are you doing on that? One to ten on. Let's just pick that one first. That was number four on the list. Worry. Are you a worrier? Tend to worry. You're kind of free from that. So the healthy end of that spectrum would be free from worry. So if you're a 10, you're like, I don't worry about anything. I don't sweat anything. People wish I would worry about stuff in my family. I don't really care about it. One is, man, I worry all the time. I'm, I'm eating up with it. Okay, one to 10 on that. The second one is prayer. Man, I'll confess, I sat down with the family. We talked yesterday about these seven and like, what, what is your strength naturally? What's your weakness naturally? Man, prayer is one I would identify as a weakness. Like, I get to prayer as a last resort. It's like, I've tried to do everything in my own power. I've called people to help me with that. I have, you know, sucked it up and motivated myself to go get it. all kinds of things before. And then finally, Christina's like, well, have you prayed about it? I'm like, it's not that desperate yet. I haven't gotten there. <laughs> And Paul says, start there, start there. Man, I, I love that there are people who are naturally gifted and blessed in this area of, of prayer. I mean, the intercessors we have back there in the back, um, I want to be better at that. I would give myself a pretty low score. So one to 10 on prayer and prayer consistently and prayer quickly. And then the next one up there on the screen is gratitude. Man, there's amazing secular research out there on the power of gratitude and thankfulness to create health in our lives, physically, mentally, and emotionally, to create relational uh, positivity in the people, you know, that you're around. Worked for this guy, Gary Smalley, who wrote books on marriage, and he was just really funny, but he'd get himself into trouble all the time with his wife. And, uh, she wasn't talking to him one time, so he went in his office, and he just started writing a list of all the things that were amazing about his wife, Norma. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't believe any of them at the moment, but he was writing them all down, and he just had page after page. And uh, he kept that thing for 25 years, that, that list. And any time things would get difficult in his marriage, he would pull that list out and think of all the things he was grateful for uh, with his wife. So we're not probably all experts like Gary was. And so, ladies, you may need to write a list of what's great about you and give it to your husband so that he can review that from time to time. One to 10 on gratitude. How are you doing on gratitude? One to 10. 10, I'm grateful. I'm so, in uh, one, man, I, I need to look around at what's positive. All right, so we keep moving along. That's six of the seven, you guys. The seventh one is in Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Thinking positively and optimistically is countercultural. We got a lot of people. I know we need realists. We probably even need pessimists. I don't know what we need them for, but I'm sure there's a reason. 
for them. But man, there's nothing wrong with being a little optimistic and looking at the bright side of things, finding what's true and pure and noteworthy and praiseworthy. And Christina and I talk a lot about this psychological principle of confirmation bias, which says you're going to find what you're looking for. So if you wake up in the morning and your thought is, this is going to be a great day. I bet I run into some really cool people and I'm excited to see how much I get done. You're going to find that throughout your day. And you can go through the same exact day. And if your thought when you hit the floor, getting out of bed is, ah, this is going to be a terrible day. Man, I got that meeting I don't want to have. I'm going to run into people that are grumpy. And you know what? I just hope I can get back to this bed in one piece. Well, guess what? That's what you're going to find throughout your day. We find what we're looking for. And that's why Paul is trying to capitalize on that. And he's saying, look, why not focus your mind on the good stuff? What's true and praiseworthy? How are you doing at that? One to, one to ten on focusing on what's good and true and praiseworthy. All right, tell somebody beside you. So that, uh, that's the whole list. We'll pop it all up here on the screen. So now that you've scored yourself, rated yourself, what's one that you would say is, comes pretty naturally to you and one that you think maybe you could work on if you want to be a better example or a better leader or a better friend? We need to look different. And if we live out the things on this list, we will look different from the people around us. Paul, uh, man, again, he loved these folks. And uh, he realized that they hadn't seen Jesus while Jesus was here. And so he says this very thing in, in verse 9. He says, whatever you've seen, um, y'all pop that up there so I don't totally butcher it, but whatever you've seen or heard or received or learned from me, put it into practice. And that's a bold statement. I mean, I would say most of my day, I look at my boys and I say, hey, don't do that the way I just did that. All right. Or, you know, I'm an adult. That's why I can do it that way. You don't do it that way. <laughs> Teaching Cody how to, he's doing his driving, you know, he's got his permit and uh, between our house and the school, he rolled through four stop signs. I'm like, dude, what is happening? He's like, well, that's how I've watched you drive all these years. I'm like, oh, good point. That is how I drive. Don't drive like I drive, at least not during the test. Don't do it during the test because I'm only taking you over there one time to that DPS place. Man, but isn't that bold? Like to live a life that's so countercultural, to live a life that is so in line with what God wants for you that you're willing to say, hey, I know you, you guys may not have seen Jesus, but you've seen me and you need to follow that. It's a big deal. You may have heard me tell this story before, but it seems to fit here. Uh, when I was nine, my, my mom died and uh, my dad and my little sister and I, it was just three of us, and I, I developed this irrational fear that my dad was going to was going to be gone too. Mom was gone one day she was there, the next day she was gone. I was think, thought that my dad would do the same thing. And uh, I was really, really scared. So at night, he would put me to bed and then I would come downstairs in the night and I would climb in bed with him because I, I wanted to be there to make sure he didn't leave. And uh, my dad is right over there. He's a cowboy construction worker. Um, he didn't read any psychology books back then, thankfully, because there's probably would have been somebody that would have told him that he was fostering an unhealthy attachment and some other junk. Uh, 
my dad just was a dad. And so he grabbed me and held me and put me in bed with him. And I went back to sleep. And I did that for weeks until one day when uh, I woke up in the night after having been in his bed and he was gone. And my worst fear had happened. And so I panicked and I started looking all around the house. I couldn't find him. Finally, I saw a light on in his closet, his walk-in closet, and I kind of went, I peeked around the door, and uh, he was on his knees kneeling in front of a chair. And uh, I just stood back and waited, and he finally came out, and I said, Dad, what are you, what are you doing in there? I was scared. And he said, Son, I, I need you to know, like, I don't know how your sister and you and I are going to make it without your mom, but I know that Jesus has the answer. And I'm in here every morning asking him to help us. Now, you didn't understand it. At that time in my life, I didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I didn't understand how Jesus, I didn't understand my mom's death. I didn't understand any of that. But I was going to follow my dad. And he was following Jesus. That's what we need to be. If you're a man in this room with kids, that's how you need to live your life. Or anybody else in this room. That's how we want to live our life because people are watching. The cool outcome to all of these verses in Philippians, he says it in right there at the end, and the peace of God will be with you. And then in verse seven, back up a couple, it says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the outcome. Apply these seven principles and watch the peace of God infiltrate your life so that you can share that with the people around you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, man, days like this where I get to remember my dad and tell him how amazing he is, where people in this room, Lord, dads that I look up to and I admire um, are here. And I thank you, Lord, for the people that love and encourage us. I do pray that we would all rejoice in our citizenship in heaven, that we would pursue your kingdom above all else, and that we would be willing to live counterculturally. We'd stand firm. Lord, we'd be gentle. We would rejoice. We would look for the positives. We would express gratitude in prayer, and we would work hard to free ourselves from worry. You, Lord, can help us to do that. A relationship with you is the key.